0: Well, let's get started. I know that you could talk forever. It's fun to be up here and get to watch your conversations. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and um, I'm so glad to be here tonight. It's really, for me, a fun way to start off our long holiday weekend, and I hope it is for you as well. And when we design Summer Women in the Word, we uh, try to make it easy for you to come and go as you need to, because we know people travel in the summer. So if you haven't been here much, that's okay, but just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you have been here for this summer series three or more times. Look at you guys so faithful. Okay, what about four or more times? Good. And then who has been here every week this time? It's okay if you haven't, but that's fine. Good for you guys. You get a virtual gold star. And then, is there anybody here who had never been to Women in the Word before? This summer series is your first time to ever do Women in the Word. Okay, that's awesome. Come back in the fall, you will love it. Come back. Okay, well we are studying the book of Jonah tonight. Uh, It is a great story and there is a lot in it, so we are going to go ahead and just dive right in. Hopefully you have your Bibles open because you've been looking over it. And we are going to start by reading the first three verses in chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, So let's get some background before we really jump into the story. The book of Jonah tells a true story. It is historical fact, but I have been so in awe of the writer of this book because he tells this true story in a satire, which is a literary form um a story meant to expose human folly, often through the use of humor. And if you look carefully, there's actually quite a bit of humor in Jonah. We'll talk about it a little bit of it tonight. Jonah was a prophet. He was a man chosen by God, sent to deliver a message to a chosen group of people. Usually a prophet's message involved a call to repentance, a call for the people to turn away from their sin and back toward God. You will remember that um, from last, Two weeks ago, when uh, Wendy taught about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, uh, the um, whatever it's called, the Old Testament... <laughs> I don't think that's right. They weren't the prophets of Baal. Elijah, the Old Old Testament prophets are commonly broken up into two groups. We have the major um, prophets. They usually had more sweeping messages for entire groups of people, generally for the um, nation of Israel. And their prophecy often would talk about both short-term future and then also long-term future. Daniel and Isaiah would be good examples of the major prophets. Then we have the minor prophets. They also voiced similar calls for repentance by the people, but their books are always shorter. Sometimes they would have a message to a smaller group of people, and sometimes that message was smaller in scope. Jonah is a minor prophet, and he is a great example of that. He has This is a short book with a very specific message to a very specific group of people. We know from Second Kings 14 that Jonah lived during the reign of Israel's king, Jeroboam II. That was about the mid-8th century B.C., and his mission in Nineveh was not his only task that he was given by God. we also read in second Kings that he had been given the privilege of taking a message of blessing to his own people in Israel God had told him to tell his country that he was going to bless them and that their borders would be increased so he had had a cushy job of getting to tell good news before he had uh, to his own people before he'd had this job that he wasn't quite as fond of so let's pick up in verse four and we're going to So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, "'I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land.' Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, "'What is it you have done?' For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, "'What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us?' For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Then he said to them, "'Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you.'" I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And we're going to stop there for now. So God commissions Jonah to call for the repentance of Nineveh. In response, Jonah attempts to flee from God. Jonah is God's man, so why does he react so negatively to this commissioning that he would find a boat headed as far in the opposite direction of Nineveh as he could possibly go? The answer is a little bit long. Nineveh is a large and important city in the country of Assyria. Assyria was to the north and slightly to the east of Israel. Israel and Assyria had long been political and military enemies many battles had occurred between these two countries as well as the other surrounding countries around them. Borders were often fluid so depending on who had the stronger military at the time they would gain and lose territory. Borders would move over time and they definitely warred against each other many times. Jonah knows that if Nineveh repents and turns away from their sin and God doesn't destroy them they're going to live another day to fight another battle against Israel and honestly it would be easier for Jonah and his people to not have to deal with that enemy. Also, you notice that God calls the behavior of the Assyrians evil. Um, they were an incredibly cruel and violent people. As I was studying this um, and the Syrian culture, I was a little surprised because there was a period a few years ago where I got really interested in World War II history, and I read a stack of books um, about World War II. Most of them were autobiographies of men who had fought in the war, usually in the Pacific because that's what I was particularly interested in. And some of those books were filled with war atrocities that really almost defied the imagination. But when I read some of um, the Assyrian practices, it was honestly beyond anything I had ever read before. I just stopped at one point reading some of the history because the extreme brutality of these people was really... um, Hard to believe. Their culture was full of witchcraft, prostitution, incredible amounts of alcoholism, uh, worship of false gods was incredibly widespread. Right and these were honestly a people that really reveled in that evil and that culture. They, uh, their war practices were terrible, and it wasn't just... Uh, when, when they captured enemies, um, they did not capture just the soldiers, but women and children as well, and the brutality was against them. Um, they really did celebrate their evilness. So Jonah's not wrong to hate what the Ninevites did. God hated it too. He called it evil and he wanted it stopped. The difference between God and Jonah was that Jonah could not see past his personal hatred to remember that those were a people created by God in his image with souls Um, that had been created to do something far different from the life they were living. And while God hated their sin, he cared very much for them personally, um, and he had a deep desire that they would turn towards him. So Jonah says, no, thanks, but no thanks. Totally content to let the Ninevites just be wiped off the face of the earth. So here's where a little bit of humor comes in. You may have noticed that Jonah is not a laid-back guy, as you read during the study questions. Um, So when he decides to say no to God, he doesn't just stay at home and say no he immediately boards a boat pays his own fare and finds a place to go that is as far away from Nineveh as he can can possibly get Tarshish is we don't know exactly where Tarshish was many theologians think it was on the coast of Spain which would would have put it on the exact opposite side of the Mediterranean from where he was a distance of several thousand miles an enormous distance in his day his point is I'm not going to be idle about this. I am actively turning as far away from from, from the Lord as I can get. That phrase, away from the presence with the Lord, you will have noticed, was used three times. And it was really meant to emphasize Jonah's intention. He was very intentional about trying to turn away from God. And I think he was so busy saying, nope, not going to do this, not interested, that he forgot the truth of Psalm 139, 9 and 10 on your verse sheet. It says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Okay, so normally there's lots of comfort in knowing that God is with us all the time, and we can't escape his presence. Not so much for Jonah on that day. Jonah gets on the boat, finds out it's not as easy to escape from the Lord as he hoped it would be. God hurls this massive storm on the sea. And I love that word hurled. It's such a visual picture of God's power, I think. Um, and I, I feel like that storm that he sent was almost like God putting his hands on Jonah's shoulders and trying to get eye to eye with him and saying, Jonah, pay attention and listen to me. I'm trying to get your attention. But Jonah is determined to ignore the voice of God. He goes below deck and naps. Um, okay, so I was wondering if Jonah might have been what moms today call a strong-willed child. Okay. Um, He knows that the storm is a life-threatening situation. He knows it's happening because of him. He is completely um, determined to ignore God. Um, He also has a total lack of concern for that whole boat full of pagan soldiers that if that ship goes down are going to die, um, not having a saving faith in the living God. And you know, Jonah hates the Ninevites because of their cruel disregard for human life but in this moment when he is intent on ignoring God he is really no better than those people that he has so much hatred for the sailors begin to realize the storm is Jonah's fault Um, and even after Jonah says throw me overboard they are determined to find a way not to do that to him they look for another way even in these very dire circumstances Again, Jonah stands in judgment of those who don't worship his God, yet these pagan soldiers who clearly don't yet worship his God um, have more regard for his life than he, who should have higher regard for them than he does. Um, It's a sad statement, I think. Eventually, feeling they have no choice, the sailors do throw Jonah overboard. That storm stops, and now God has those men's attention. Realizing that their false gods have never displayed the kind of power and authority over nature that the living God of Israel just did, they believe and worship accordingly. They make vows to continue worshiping once the storm stops. They make vows to continue worshiping the one true God. Look with me at Psalm 22.5. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. If these sailors were able to trust and fear the living God so readily after this one display of his power, I wonder how much more we should respond and worship um, our living God, given that we know him and have the whole of scripture in our hands, have such great teaching right at our fingertips every day. Their response to a show of God's power has been very convicting to me. You know, most of what we learn from Jonah is by negative example. He literally slept while a deadly storm threatened the lives of men around him. Let us not be women who sleep through life while there are lost around us who are perishing. Instead, let's be women who live purposefully, obeying the commands and instructions of Jesus in Matthew five sixteen. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Okay, look with me now just at um, chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So we've seen God's sovereign control over nature and creation when he hurled that storm into the sea, and then he calmed that storm. Now we see his sovereignty... And that fish swallowing Jonah, it was no random luck. That fish had been assigned to this task. Chapter 2 records Jonah's prayer from the deep. I hope you got a chance to uh, look over that carefully in your discussion time. You know, until I really study this text, I will tell you that I had always thought of the fish swallowing Jonah as a punishment. In reality, you see in that prayer that, the, that Jonah was in the deep with the seaweed all around him, probably moments from drowning. And the fish actually saved his life. Um, In truth, God provides that great fish to rescue Jonah from drowning. And Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving is for being saved by the fish, not from the fish. Remember, he prays that prayer of, Um, thanksgiving for his life being saved while he's still in the belly of the fish. So most of us are pretty familiar with time out as a discipline technique for kids. I've used it lots of times myself with my boys. One of them was um, a little more responsive to it than the other because he kind of liked being in the middle of the action more than others. I wonder if when our kids and grandkids... um, really understand the story, they might think their timeout chair isn't quite as bad as they thought it was. Jonah was disrespectful and disobedient to God, and God gave Jonah what I think amounted to a three-day timeout in the belly of a hot, stinky, slimy fish, dark um, Okay, so you know you've heard that phrase, tough love. It, was, it, it talks about when someone will treat somebody harshly, maybe a parent to a child, um, with the hope that at some point good will come out of it. That term was coined in the late 60s. There's nothing new under the sun, and I kind of feel like Jonah's three days in the fish was God's version of tough love timeout. Jonah had plenty of time to think about the compassionate nature of God who had saved him while he was in that fish. He had plenty of time to think about salvation belonging to God and not to him. And it's interesting to me that every line of Jonah's prayer is either a quote or a paraphrase of a psalm. Jonah knew God's word. The problem with Jonah was, I think, that he had a head knowledge of God's word. At this point, it doesn't seem like what he knew of God had made it to his heart. Um, the scriptures have not managed to change him into a man of obedience, uh, compassion, kindness, or love for the lost people around him. Unfortunately, Jonah closes his prayer on a promising note. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And I think in this moment, at least in the uh, end of his three-day timeout, I think he gets it. You know, I really love also the end of Jonah's prayer with God's salvation on his lips because Jonah's 3 days in the whale are a foreshadowing of Jesus 3 days in the grave. Look with me at Matthew 12:40. For just as Jonah was 3 days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is Jesus speaking prophetically about his own coming death and his resurrection. Um, And it was the death and resurrection of Jesus that accomplished God's means of salvation for all who believe. Jonah's timeout is over, so that fish vomits Jonah up on the shore. This is another part that is fairly funny if you stop and think about it. It's pretty ignoble to be vomited out on a beach um, by a fish. I am so curious as to whether, as he's laying there covered in slime, if people are around. Did God spare him of that indignity? I don't know. I would so love to know how that looked and how long he laid there and how he cleaned up and all of that. I will also tell you that if I had been in that fish for three days, I probably would have spent a lot of time wondering if I was going to get out, and if I was going to get out, how I was going to get out. And the truth is, being vomited out is probably better than the alternative, so maybe God's compassion takes different forms in our lives. I so debated whether to say that or not. I hope it's not too gross, but I just thought it so many times, so I had to share it with you. Follow along with me. Let's read chapter (laughs) 3. Poor Jonah. He kind of deserved it, though. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So Jonah half-heartedly obeys God. He goes to Nineveh and warns them of coming destruction because of their deep sin. But you Notice that twice, Nineveh is called a great city. That means that it was a large and culturally important city. Um, full of thousands of men and women and children who did not know God, who had been made in his image, but who were in danger of dying without having the opportunity to hear his word. Jonah goes into the city to warn the people that they must turn from their worship of false gods and evil practices or face certain destruction from the hand of the living God. You know, the deep and wide compassion of God is certainly a major theme in Jonah. Jonah. But we also cannot miss the truth that God will not tolerate the sins of Nineveh forever. Um, God will destroy them in his perfect timing if they do not turn from their evil ways. But does Jonah speak here of a man passionate to turn a lost nation's heart to God? I don't think so. And to just stop for a second and think about, if you're familiar with some of the other prophets, the deep passion and distress that they have for their people Look with me at at Isaiah 55. It's a great example here of that. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That, there's a lot more of that where it came from. Lots of verses like this. Isaiah was a man who clearly um, had a deep desire for the people to turn back to God, a deep worship for His God, and now compare that to Jonah's eight clipped words. Yet forty days, and then it will be overthrown. I, mean, I feel like he kind of added that at the end. Okay, so you know you've seen almost all of us have probably either been or seen that kid who does something wrong and is made to apologize to somebody else. Um, with my boys, it goes something like, "I'm sorry." Um, I've seen, or maybe I've been, that girl years ago that would say something like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, I called you ugly." Um, you know, Jonah's eight words strike me as coming kind of from that same insincere place. I think he was following the letter of the law, but I'm not so sure about the spirit of it. I can just see him walking forth, back and forth across this great city, yet 40 days, and then it will be overthrown. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. You know, when you compare that to what you have in Isaiah, it's just a very different spirit there. Yet in in spite of that lack of elaboration, Jonah's words made an immediate and huge impact, beginning with the people and then going to the king and backed by him. Nineveh believed the word of God. They turned away from their sin, and they grieved over their wickedness. It almost seems hard to believe that a people this evil would turn so quickly to God, but in fact, it did happen, and here's some interesting history. Not long before Jonah went to Nineveh, um, it's recorded in um, other documents, there had been um, two... Famines and a total eclipse, which is a very rare event. Both the famines and that eclipse were seen by the Assyrians, who, remember, worshipped false gods, as a sign of divine wrath. So it may be that their hearts were primed to hear a message from God. And I don't think that would have been a coincidence. I think that would have been something directly from the hand of God, who in his mercy used those events to get the people's attention. So Nineveh event, repents and is spared. A God whose love for those he created that goes to these great lengths to draw men and women toward him is a God worth following. We see it here in Nineveh. We later see it in the work that was completed by Jesus on the cross. You should have noticed in verses 7 through 9 that that king wasn't just looking out for himself. I'm not entirely sure what his motives were, There are several things they could have been, but this I do know. Once he understood about the need to repent, he didn't just take care of his own business before God, which I think would have kept him plenty busy as the king of this um, very uh, dark and evil military empire. He shows great concern that the people would also repent. Like those sailors on Jonah's ship, This pagan king values the people around him more deeply than Jonah does. You know, this whole chapter to me is a really stunning picture of God's great compassion for the repentant sinner. God extends his saving mercy to all who seek him. Regardless of their past history, Jonah thought God's great mercy was only for the people of Israel, but that was not true at all. God showers his grace and his mercy on those men and women who had a history of committing atrocities, who had a history of reveling in those things. But now they're leaving those ways around behind, turning toward him. And what does that mean for us here tonight? I think it means that there is nothing that any of us have done that is too much for God to forgive I think that as long as we trust that our sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus, when we place our faith and our trust in him and orient our lives toward him, he can and will redeem every corner of our lives. His grace is enough. Okay, let's pick back up in our text. Follow along with me as I read chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O Lord, is not not this what I said when I was yet in my country? "'That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, "'for I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, "'slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love "'and relenting from disaster. "'Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, "'for it is better for me to die than to live.' And the Lord said, "'Do you do well to be angry?' And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah responds angrily to God's compassion. After he warns Nineveh of God's coming judgment, Jonah goes outside and awaits their fate outside of the city. In his personal judgment, God was wrong to give Nineveh a chance to turn away from their sin. I think that he probably went there to uh, watch the destruction. I think he thought their repentance was not sincere and that he would go ahead and get to watch what he was hoping was coming for them. And I know right now that some of you are silently judging Jonah because as I studied this book, I battled that myself. Um, I battled judging Jonah for just flat out refusing to let God be God. Um, But for any of us who have experienced God's forgiveness, uh, the forgiveness that Jesus offers us, but are unwilling to forgive someone in our own lives, we are no different from Jonah. Look with me at Colossians 3 on your verse sheet. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive It would probably be appropriate um, to stop right now and just stew on that last part a little bit as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, we don't have time to do that, but you might want to come back to that later. Um, I certainly thought about that. Um, I came back to that verse often as I was studying um, for this. In his anger over Nineveh's repentance, Jonah prays. And you know, for all the knocks against Jonah and there are a lot, this is one thing he really does well um, several times throughout this book, he is willing to come to God honestly, um, communicating openly with him. And again, he acknowledges the steadfast love of God just like he did from the belly of the fish. Um, Jonah does not have a problem with knowledge. When he is a recipient of God's steadfast love, Jonah is filled with thanksgiving. When the Ninevites are the recipients of God's steadfast love, he's filled with resentment and anger. So that's a theme throughout Noah, and it's a good thing that I'm not God, because about the time he sits outside the city and starts to pout, I feel like I'm done with him. But not so with God, thankfully. Patiently, graciously, God asks Jonah a rhetorical question, inviting him to examine his own heart for the sin within and reconsider Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Do I do well to be angry? If you're struggling with anger or with difficulty forgiving someone, um, God wants you to bring that before him in obedience, but he never expects us to muster up that obedience on our own. Um, Instead, our ability to obey comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to read it today, but when you can, go back to the two verses that are next, 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 4. The obedience we are called to is hard. Um, As much as I want to, I get why Jonah hated Nineveh, But we can do all things not on our own, but through Christ who strengthened us. These verses are good um, remembrances of that. God first provides and then removes a nice shady vine over Jonah's shelter. Again, a sovereign display of God's control over nature. We had um, the storm. The fish. Now we have God appointing the vine to grow very quickly. Then we have the worm that He appoints to eat it up so that He no longer has that shelter. And then we have Him appointing that east wind. Uh, Lest we think that there is anything outside of the control of God, there is not. Uh, His control over nature in this book, I think, is a great example of that. When that vine withers, Jonah's distress shows that he cares more about the destruction of that vine and about his own physical comfort than he does about the souls of all of those people in Nineveh. God continues his patient work with the pouty prophet by asking him another rhetorical question that invites Jonah to compare his concern for that plant with the souls of those thousands of people, people listen to how one theologian paraphrased this. This is God um, speaking to Noah. A paraphrase. Let's analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plant, but what did it really mean to you? Your attachment to it couldn't be very deep, for it was here one day and gone the next. Your concern was dictated by self-interest, not by genuine love. You never had the devotion of a gardener. If you feel as bad as you do. What would you expect a gardener to feel like who tended a plant and watched it grow only to see it wither and die? This is how I feel about Nineveh, only much more so. All those people, all those animals, I made them. I cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no little effort, and it means the world to me. Your pain is nothing compared to mine when I contemplate their destruction. God loves the lost, and we are called to share that love and concern for the lost with him. Look with me at 1 Timothy 2. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Honestly, it's much easier not to be burdened with this. It is much easier to stay busy in our own lives and not look too far beyond that. But in light of God's calling Jonah to reexamine his own heart when he couldn't get on board with God's plans... I think it would be wise for each of us to examine our own hearts um, and to confess any sin that prevents us from extending God's love to a lost and dying world. I had some practice with this last week. Um, after Friday's Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage came down, my Facebook feed, really until now, has just blown up with um, a lot of strong opinion. Um, There were a number of commentaries that I read that bashed my God and my faith, that twisted um, the words of the Bible and of God. And for a while, I was patient, and then I wasn't. And I responded in my heart very angrily and in a way that did not honor God. Um, I took it personally, and I began to honestly feel for Jonah a little bit more than I had before before. Uh, It is funny, but it was also really serious at the time, too. And that's when that, I'm sorry, a set in judgment of Jonah, Lord, came in. Uh, But when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness in a difficult political and cultural climate. I think we will need to continually ask God to give us his love for a lost world. And he will be faithful to do that for us. You know, the book Jonah ends without resolution. And I said earlier that I am convinced this is an incredibly well-written story because it really is. And so that abrupt ending, I don't think it's because the author ran out of paper. I think it ends with an invitation for both Jonah and the reader. That would be us to reflect on God's compassion for the lost and God's desire that we would share that compassion you know, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If there was the hope of redemption for Nineveh, there is the same hope for us today, both personally and as a nation and as a world created by God. So I'd like to close tonight with first, or Second Corinthians 5.17 on your verse sheet. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Lord God, I thank you. Um, I thank you, first of all, for our gift of salvation that was so costly for you, but which you give so freely to us. I pray um, that that would be forefront in our minds, God, and no matter what else is going on in our lives, that we have that, and that is something that cannot ever be taken away from us. I thank you for the gift of your word and the freedom to study it here and open in the open tonight. Um, I ask that we would be women after your own heart who would care about what you care about. Um, and then I just ask humbly, Lord, for the safety over the holiday weekend of every family represented here tonight. Um, and I thank you um, for our nation. I pray that you would bless it. I pray that we would turn toward you as a nation um, and that we here in this room would be women who are um, obedient obedient. To you. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Thanks everyone and have a great 4th of July. We will see you back here in September.